Welcome to Being Invested with me, Susanna Nicklin. This is the podcast where we explore investing from the inside. I'm not talking about insider information, but the personal stories of the people who make the markets. I've always been fascinated by how skilled investors have become who they are, how they've ridden the roller coasters, and what it means to them. I'll introduce you to innovators and leaders in all types of assets and markets, from blue chip stocks to venture capital, from timber to crypto, from violins to power plants. I've been an investor and worked in the international capital markets for my whole career. I've had a front row view of the women and men who move money to shape our world, and I've always been interested in who they are as human beings, the choices they've made, the qualities that make them good at what they do, and how they deal with setbacks. This is not a podcast about where to invest your money. It's a podcast for people who want to understand and thrive in the financial services industry. For those of you just thinking about entering it, for anyone a bit stuck in one corner and ready for a change, and for those of you who are just plain curious about who the people are behind the world's financial markets, you'll get to hear how investors have built and are building their careers and their businesses and learn from them to invest for the outcomes you desire and how to respond when the price tanks. The mindset of being invested can enrich and elevate your journey, and I'd love to encourage more people into the sector who may not have considered it before. Please join me for riveting conversations and new insights into the careers, life hacks, and hard-won life lessons of investors across the globe. My guest today is Alexandra Ivanova. Alex has been an analyst and later a fund manager for Invesco since 2006. She started off in the U.S. fixed income team and since 2015 has been part of the Henley-based fixed interest team, managing over $10 of assets for retail and institutional investors in the U.K. and globally. The strategies she manages now include credit portfolios, global mixed asset income products, And she began her career with Munichrist Investment Management Company in 2001 as a fixed income quantitative research analyst. But to get there, she had to have incredible drive, tenacity, and outstanding math skills. She grew up in the far east of Russia in Yakutsk, and the story of her determination to get an education in the U.S. and work in international finance, I think, is spine-tingling. She speaks four languages. Her husband is from Spain, and she has two children. Alex holds an MSc in International Economics from Yakut State University and a BSc in Finance and an MBA from the University of Louisville. She is also a CFA charter holder. And in her free time, Alex enjoys maths puzzles, learning Italian, which is her fourth language, uh, sorry, her fifth language even, Uh, working on her new charity called Save the Permafrost, and is currently building a really fabulous-looking Huff House, which I can vouch for. So, Alex, welcome, and thank you for coming on the podcast as one of my early guests. Thank you for inviting. Um, It's actually quite interesting to hear all this summary that you have just read. Um, It's really uh, reflective of of the journey that I have done. And on day-to-day basis, it's very difficult to stop and think where I have been, right? So thank you for doing that. Well, it's a, it's a great story. Um, and I really appreciate your being willing to share it um, because I think there are a lot of lessons and um, much, much to discuss. So why don't we start actually with the journey? 
um, that you've taken to get where you are and uh, to managing 10 billion pounds of assets in Henley in the UK, um, because it's a story of personal determination and adaptation. So please tell us how you got here. It's a long journey. Um, so I, I guess it's, I, I grew up in uh, far east of Russia. So I was brought up in a, during Soviet times. So uh, at the time there was no capital markets in Russia. The only understanding of any investments was about um, having some government bonds paper form that uh, my parents used to get um, as working for the government. Um, and I grew up in a small village. I barely spoke Russian actually, uh, because I grew up speaking my native language. And the journey probably started when I moved away from my family um, and I was accepted in a boarding school when I was 14 to go and live in town in Yakutsk. And looking back, uh, I think at the time it felt like I was ready to go and spread my wings, leave my school, my friends, my family, and um, go on this journey, uh, meet new people. Um, I guess if I think about children at 14 now, um, it, it must have been quite incredible journey that I didn't really grasp the importance of it. So very quickly, I became very independent. Uh, two years of schooling and then the university years started um, in, in Russia. The education system is slightly different. So instead of high, yield, uh, high um, school, you end up going to um, university earlier, but you stay there uh, a bit longer. So it was a cultural shock. I was missing my family and you have new school, new teachers, new friends, you live somewhere on your own um, and and you almost learn another language because I had to learn Russian fluently because everything was taught in Russian. What was driving you? Like, did you did you have a sense of, uh, of, of, of a vision for your life or was it just wanting to survive? Was it just taking opportunities that came your way or... Did you have any role models? Uh, I, I would say probably my mom. My mom instilled in me from very early age that I could do anything I really wanted. And obviously at the time you can't see the summit of that growth or adventure, but the direction, uh, it was set very early on. And I was very curious child, I think. I used to do all this back of the newspaper puzzles, math puzzles or crosswords. And one day uh, I came across this math challenge that they were um, running in the youth magazine. And that was a way of selecting uh, children to go to this um, special maths and physics school, a Republican. And I applied. I, I, I did the problems. I sent it by mail, forgot about it. And a couple of weeks later, we get an invitation to to go on a summer camp. It was on the river, actually, uh, in a very nice cruise liner. Uh, it felt like it was such a privilege to be able to go and spend 
four weeks on the boat and have this uh, amazing opportunity to learn more of maths and physics, the science. And how old were you then? So I was 13. I was 13. So I went there and what I actually learned, my very first uh, lesson um, was that, so you grow up in a small place, everybody knows each other. So you get to be assessed mostly by your parents or assessed by the people who know your parents. And my parents are blue collar workers. Um, and in school, for example, I, I was not a bad student. I was okay student, um, but I always felt somewhere in the average. And then I go to this camp, no one knows me. No one knows everybody else. You just do what you do. And I've never participated in, in these math Olympiads. Like they used to do this competition in, in math because I, there was always better kids in my class and the teachers will send those kids to participate. And to my biggest surprise, I actually got the second place. I could not believe it. I just thought that can't be true. I, you know, I don't, I'm not the best. I, I just do it because I like it. But the lesson was that actually in, in the place where you don't, nobody knows you, they judge you with your abilities rather than with your background, right? And that has been um, experienced throughout my life because obviously I've moved from my hometown to the US and then the UK. So that fresh start, you were able to be seen for who you were rather than where you came from. Exactly. And that gave me um, a lot of confidence to actually continue on the journey. So I was accepted in the school. I spent two years, best years of my life, actually, because um, my friends that I've made there are lifelong friends. I still, I'm still friends with them. And so interestingly, my children now, um, they're eight and 12, they ask about, oh, what's going to happen if I leave my friends, if I go to a big school, they're nervous, right? And I always tell them, you just don't know, you might actually meet your best friend in your next school. Uh, you keep growing. So uh, that's, that's the journey, that's the start of the journey. And um, from there on, I just did what I did. I remember you telling me that you had to apply, was it four times for the, for the U.S.? um in application process is that right so yeah um again uh i i knew i wanted something something better something bigger but i had no idea what it was the first year of university there was this program where they selected the best students to go and visit the university of alaska which at the time um was such a big privilege because people just literally started traveling abroad and seeing the world because the country was closed for so many years that my parents have never been outside of um, Russia before. And, and the first year, it was not a selection process. It was appointed by teachers. So there were two uh, girls that were in my class. They ended up going. And I was so jealous. I remember I thought, oh, I want to do that, but I'm not good enough. I'm going to work harder to, to get there. So then the next year, they actually opened the program that was not just for um, a visit for a couple of months, and then you come back and you continue with your education. This was actually a program more permanent where you go and study and you actually get a degree 
in uh, American University. And then you can come back and, and work uh, in your hometown. And that process, so the in year two, year three was failure for me. Well, I say it wasn't actually failure. It was a lot of learning uh, experience there. And maybe for the listeners, you have to understand that I, I love my maths and, and I did really well in my math subjects. I had such a weak English at the time. The first year of university, I failed my English. And for me, it was a wake-up call, really, truly wake-up call, because I never fail anything. I'm not the best, but I, I do hard work. But this time, it was um, such a wake-up call to the point that as soon as that happened, I decided that I'm going to move out of the dormitory where I was living and I'm going to live with my aunt. And then I I had a boyfriend at the time. I had to break up with the boyfriend, say I want to focus on my studies and I am not going to go out and party and spend time doing that. I'm just going to sit and I'm going to study my English. I need to pass by the end of the year. So from Christmas until May, I just did such a hard work. Um, I remember memorizing, repeating, doing my exercises, reading, translating. And um, and by the end of the year, I actually ended up the year um, as a B student. So it's kind of an, an American equivalent. And my teacher said, um, of all the children who started at the same time, you had the highest improvement through the year. Impressive. That's a, that was a really transformational period. It's like you, it sounds as though without that uh, focus, you might not have managed to get where you are. No. And again, the lesson was that if you really put your mind into doing something, anything really, you can do it. You just have to have a game plan, stick to it and be consistent. And I also hear that you had to give some things up. Yeah, you have to prioritize in your life. Um, you can't do everything at the same time and be successful in everything you want. And if you know what the priorities are for your uh, and how that fits into your long-term plan, that's that's the most important thing. I think it's also quite amazing having introduced you as speaking for learning a fifth language that you struggled with English. It, it's hard to believe that now. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I always feel like some people say people have talent for languages. And I say, I certainly didn't. It was such a hard work for me. And then the more languages I, I learned, people say, oh, because you speak so many languages, it's easy for you. And I say, no, it's not. It's all about consistency. It's mm -hmm. all about determination and, and sticking with it. It's, it's not easy. Speaking of not easy, um, moving from the Far East, the, the permafrost, to Kentucky also sounds like that had its own uh, own challenges and, and must have been a huge culture shock. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how that was for you, getting there, leaving your family, um, and, and what it felt like arriving. Yeah, um, I remember. So I was applying for this program the, the last three years and finally uh, I was able to get on it and again there is a story of I wasn't the best and I was in the reserve and I was number six and they were supposed to 
pick only five kids. And then in the end, they I went to interview with the Department of Education who was doing the selection program. And um, in the end, uh, they wanted to send me as well as the other five. So they expanded the project <laughs> to six people. That's how I ended up being selected. They told me you're going to the University of Louisville. And I was like, where is that? <laughs> That's great. So, so you were going from the far northeast of Russia to the, the far northwest of the southeast. <laughs> exactly. Brilliant. Yes. If you are very good in geography, you can kind of picture you can that. Picture but obviously, it, yes. I had no idea where I was going. And uh, it no. wasn't the age of the internet, so it was a little bit harder to get a grasp of what it was like. What year was this, Alex? It, it was 1996. So just before the Glasnost? Yes. I mean, the Glasnost was already there. Mm. Um, uh, the country was opening up. And this was part of the, the whole program where, uh, whereby youngsters like myself were given opportunities to go and um, get good American education, um, a Western education. Um, there were some... Um, people that ended up in Canada, some people in Scotland and England. So um, I, I was in, I was put on a plane. Someone must have done my visa and they put us on the plane. So it was myself and a friend of mine. And we boarded that plane. And I remember it was a, a long journey. And I remember landing in Louisville and it was in the middle of the night. It was dark all i could see was light so we we have a phone phone number we call this um person who is our contact from the payphone and we explain the situation that there is no one to pick us up the the um campus is not open what are we doing so he he said okay wait here don't go too far i'm gonna call back that phone so i remember waiting and wondering how the system of booking works in America because I thought that he had to be physically be in Louisville to make sure that we have a hotel room but no uh, he has done it over the phone I was just fascinated how you could actually pay for your hotel using a credit card over the phone because the system in in Russia is all in cash it was all in cash you can't do anything so it was your first experience with that fungible, liquid, almost liquid finance. And when you started in Louisville, did you have, were you planning to study finance to study? Did you have an interest in investing, even an understanding of what that was at that point yet? So by that time, um, because I was doing international economics, so I've, I've kind of uh, touched the subject while I was back home. And also we had um, a visiting professor from uh, University of Alaska um, also teaching us the basics of economics and finance. And um, I am very lucky person, I think, um, because very early on, I realized that as soon as I saw a subject of finance, I, I was something clicked, something was calling me. And uh, so, I went through the available majors for the um, University of Louisville uh, list of majors that you can get. 
I mean, there was nothing else. Finance was the only thing that I, I was interested in. So um, I was lucky enough to study finance and actually, and then the more I studied, the more I liked it, um, the science of it, um, the fascination by capital market. Uh, it also started in Louisville when I started my degree. I still couldn't understand how it works, mm. why it moves up and down. Um, it, it felt like a magic to me, but there was certain uh, certain feeling like this is something that I want to know more of, understand more of. And the more I studied, so finance um, as a subject, you can you can be a corporate finance or you can be more an investment side. And when I started going through different subject matters, I realized that investment side was much more aligned to what I, my skill set is, my interest is, uh, risk management, um, the quantitative side of it, uh, it. It really fascinated me. So it was very easy choice. And did coming and growing from and growing up in a in a communist country, an economy that was quite different from what you were studying now in, influence your way of of learning about it did it did it was there a was there tension in in that was there um do you think you understood it more clearly because you were learning it from from a different perspective or or did it not really matter i i certainly thought uh i i was learning how to walk in my early 20s in 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 a sense that um all of this was so foreign to me but reopening of Russian economy at the time, it felt to me, this is something where we're going to. So um, uh, it, it felt to me something that will happen in Russia and we need to learn from the best in, in the US. And, um, and the part of it that is so data-driven, quantitative and analytical, that really hooked me. Mm. Uh, from very beginning, um, I wanted to understand why. I wanted to derive it because I like to solve the puzzles. Mm -hmm. I want to know why things work the way they work. And um, I remember going to one of my professors in finance. He gave us a formula. We had to memorize it. it had something to do with the valuation formulas. And and I went to him and I said. Professor El Hajj, how did they derive to this? Did, did they come to this formula? I spent the whole weekend trying to figure out. And you know what he said? He looked at me. He said, I've been teaching finance for 20 years. You're the first person who came in and asked, how did we get that formula? Everybody else memorizes it. That's so interesting. Because you didn't know in some ways what to accept and what was needed to what needed to be learned you needed to go right to the foundations to the basic so maybe it did help in a way I also later uh, in my career probably uh, I would say the fact that I came from um, a different background and a, a place where I actually have experienced hyperinflation uh, made me a risk taker with a very level head and 
obviously there are great fund managers around the globe, but what I do think that people who have not personally experienced this um, hyperinflation uh, in their personal lives sometimes don't necessarily get it 100%. Maybe they can get it uh, quantitatively, but not emotionally. Speaking of hyperinflation, you did experience it firsthand and have a really fantastically illustrative story about that uh, from a formative period of your life. Would you like to share that story about about your mom hoping to buy a car? Yeah. So when I was a child, um, my, my parents had savings. So the, the, the only savings that they were able to get was the government bond uh, certificates. Uh, and I remember where they were saved and they, you know, they will keep it uh, somewhere where we couldn't reach. And the whole of my preteen age years, I remember my parents talking about, we want a nice, we're going to buy a nice car for the family. So all of their life savings was all about buying this nice family car. And uh, my father um, one day called from uh, a, a distant location because he he was a long distance truck driver, and he found this um, Neva car. So this is um, <laughs> Russian made car. He said um, we can buy this car. It's an export version um, of Neva, which to me didn't really speak much uh, at the time. I didn't understand what it meant. Uh, obviously, I, now I know it was it had actually higher standards to be able to be exported internationally. And um, are we going to buy it? And then my mom said, well, Neva has only two doors, doesn't have four doors. I want a car that has four doors so that kids can come in and behind, because otherwise I will have to get up, let the kids in, let the kids out. So in the end, they didn't buy the car. A couple of weeks later, um, there was this uh, Russian internal default that happened and the ruble just collapsed and there was um, hyperinflation that's, that just literally unveiled in, in front of our eyes. And by the time we were able to do anything with that money, that this uh, life savings of my parents, um, the value of it just almost disappeared. Um, and I remember my mom going to a market buying a sack of potatoes and a pair of jeans for me. That was all she could get, all the money that they had. So that was my very first personal experience of how inflation can just literally eat into your savings. Yeah. Wow. It's a, it's a graphic illustration. It's, as we were saying, it's how a car turns into a, a sack of potatoes and a pair of jeans in space of a short period of time. And is is really a very powerful memory for somebody who now invests in fixed income and is keenly conscious of the risks of inflation on forecast income streams. Um, so I think it ties in really nicely to, to learning how you moved into that part of the world of investing in finance and 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 how you started your career. Yeah, so um, again, maybe because the, by the fact of um, the fact that I really liked 
numbers and I, I, I like um, quantitative side, side of uh, finance. Uh, right away, I knew that um, equity investing was very different. Um, I, I, my personality probably didn't fit that much. I would have probably done okay, but I always felt like, oh, it's algebra, it's too easy for me. And then the derivative side of it um, felt too complex to be too detached from the fundamentals. And fixed income is such a balance between fundamental investing and part of it being so analytical and um, quantitative that really, um, really sparked interest in me from very early. It, it actually was in university, that's when I said to my professor, I really like fixed income. And um, I have the, the Bible, fixed income Bible for Bose's <laughs> fixed income investment book from um, my university. And I still kept it because that's, that's the core of uh, fixed income investing. And I remember calculating the present value of all my future coupon payments and par and uh, my yield calculations. And um, I was fascinated. I was fascinated by it. So it, I don't think it was by chance that I ended up working in a, a small boutique shop that was investing in bonds. At the time, it was municipal bonds. And did you work during university there, or was that a is that a position you you entered after graduating? I didn't care about the money. I did. I just said, like, I, I want this experience. So it, it was a small boutique investment shop um, investing in municipal bonds. And when I started, it was mostly doing everything but fund management. Uh, reflecting back on it, I say, actually, it was such a blessing for me because I learned asset management industry in that little thing because I was doing, touching everything from uh, reconciliation, from um, billing, from um, ticketing. Uh, I mean, I, I did IT. I even ended up building a web app application, even though I'm, I'm not an IT person, but I just figured Google it, <laughs> build it. <laughs> so, so when I joined Invesco, my eyes just went really big. I, I realized for every single function that I was doing in that small shop, there were departments full of people doing that. So, and I didn't know better. I just did it um, because that's what we needed. Yes, and incredible um, apprenticeship to the whole of the asset management business. Yeah, and even even now when I, I uh, talk to young girls who come for some career advice, I say sidestep is not just a sidestep. It might not feel like you're progressing, but you're definitely progressing because you're learning more of the business. You see more of what it takes to run an asset management firm. And often the distinction between the great ones and the good ones are are in that as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And interested to know a little bit about how you made the decision to stay in the U.S. Oh, again, it's a long story because um, I was sent there. Uh, obviously, the government paid for my education. So I had the duty 
wanted to come back. And I, after getting my bachelor's degree, I came back. I was so homesick. I was looking forward to, to go back home and maybe young and naive in, in, in the sense that I thought this American education, spoken English, we will continue to open up um, the economy, build up new capital markets in there. But the reality was very different. So I came in and looked for a job. So in my personal experience, uh, when I applied for different jobs, uh, positions uh, back home, people openly discriminated against women. Um, people openly discriminated against the fact that I was actually more educated because uh, while studying in the US, in the summer times, I would come back and actually finish my uh, Russian education as well. So I had two diplomas and um, they would just literally discount my American uh, diploma. And uh, I was quite frustrated. And then I ended up in a Ministry of Construction as a junior analyst. But before I left US, one of my professors, like a career advisors in, um, at the university, told me that, why don't you apply for the master's program, leave your application here, and also at the same time, apply for an um, um, assistantship position um, at the business school. So I've done that, completely forgotten about it. And um, after half a year or nine months, I get an email saying, we would like to accept you for an MBA program. Can you please send us your bank details where you have $18,000 to show us that you can pay for it? I was earning $100 a month. I had zero in my bank account. If I had one, I might not even had one. <laughs> so, oh my God. Okay, see, this is also um, a story that I tell uh, a lot of people and my kids. So what happened was... Um, at the same time, my application for um, assistantship position was also being um, considered. And they sent me an email saying, we would like to invite you for an interview. I can't afford to go to America for an interview. So uh, I emailed them back and I said, can I do this interview over the phone? Because I can't afford to travel. And luckily they agreed to interview over the phone. We didn't have smartphones back then. There was not even international connection from a home phone. So I had to go to a call center and you kind of, you give them the phone number and then they call you in and then you go to this little room and, you know, you, you take your call and think about the time difference. So by the, the, the daytime in the U.S. was three in the morning in Yakutsk. <laughs> so I had to ask a friend of mine, drive me in the middle of the night to this call center, take this call, do the interview. It must have been an hour. And I still, I, I can't remember what I talked about. Uh, long story short, I got the job. Amazing. And so because I got the job, then the MBA also accepted me. Without having to prove the, uh, the bank account. The funds, yeah. Yes, exactly. so it was all, it all finally came together. And so then, oh yeah, it's a long story because um, I couldn't even buy, um, buy my plane ticket. And then I also had a laptop, which at the time laptops, it's, it was 1998. Laptop was a luxury. And um, I bought this in America 
So I sold this laptop to fund my travel to America. And at the time, it was two and a half thousand dollars, which was a lot of money. No person, individual could pay that. And what happened was um, the dean of my department in Yakutsk University, he said, uh, we will buy this for the faculty. They needed a, a computer, but we will wire the money to you perfectly fine. But apparently it was over budget for what the dean is authorized to spend. <laughs> so I had to go to the the president of the um, university to get approval. He recognized me right away as soon as I walked into his office and he just signed the paper. And that's how I got the, my funding. And my parents had no idea that was happening this whole summer. I was supposed to be working and I was working in town. In August, I came home, I showed them my ticket. I said, I'm going back. I don't need any money from you. I've got I've, I've got my passport, I've got my visa, I've got my funding by selling the computer. What an amazing story. It's uh, for people who are more accustomed to things coming a bit more easily and have more structure around it. It's a really incredible story and inspiring. Yeah, it, it, it shows what persistence and also the relationships that you'd built up, you know, how people helped you and how people worked with you and that you know, your ability to build those relationships with them also played a role in, in that path opening up for you. Yeah, and that's one of the advices that I give uh, some of my mentees is even if you don't get a job, for example, you go for an interview, you, you start a relationship, always keep that relationship positive, even if you don't get the positive answer from them, because you never know when it's going to come back. And in my career, it has ha happened a couple of times where uh, people that I've interviewed with and later uh, they were able to help me out or connect me with somebody. So, um, and I didn't know that this is all called networking at the time. I just did it myself. <laughs> now that you are a fund manager yourself, you've worked in a number of different types of teams, different institutions, different client bases. It would be really interesting to hear a little bit more about what you think makes uh, a good fixed income investor and what makes you a good fixed income investor. A lot of fund management progression uh, career-wise works from junior analyst, analyst on the credit side. You do your um, years as an analyst, become senior analyst, and then from there you might go to a deputy fund manager and then fund manager. That's the path kind of quite uh, normal path. For me, it wasn't like that. Um, my path was quite um, long and convoluted in a way. But having said that, the reason I think I might be better suited to, to be a fund manager in fixed income is the fact that I have all these different um, experiences and I can look at the portfolio, understand the portfolio, understand the uh, quantitative side of it, correlations, risk, because I, I have spent quite a lot of my career uh, looking at portfolio risk, performance, attribution, calculations. And, um, and then when I moved to fund management role, I had to pick up the fundamental analysis part of it, which I didn't have to do because um, luckily we have an amazing team of credit analysts. They do the, the job really, really well. 
but you still have to understand what you're investing in individual credit names. So, but it was easier skill set to pick it up and then combine the both together. So in the investment world, we probably call it having a macro top-down view and having a bottom-up fundamental view. And what is probably lacking uh, in terms of the talent in, in, in this um, fixed income fund management probably is having a person who has really good big picture view and can combine the bottom of, of fundamental name picking skills. And um, people tend to be really, really good either or, or, and I will say I'm probably not really, really good in either, but I'm very good at combining the both together and, and working in, out in the portfolio. So I really enjoy it. I, I love it. People from on the outside might look at fixed income and think it's one of the drier, more, you know, more wholly quantitative aspects of the investment landscape. And is there an element of instinct or subjectivity in the work you do? It's just a very difficult question to answer because um, I have been told um, that I know how to do it. You have a talent for it or just go and do it. Right. And and I struggled with that definition. You have a talent, it's intuition or, you know, you sense it. it it's never that easy. And my, my previous boss used to say, people might call it intuition, but it's not necessarily. It's actually the fact that you have all the knowledge and experience and you have gone through this um, rigorous way of analyzing portfolios and then also understanding the fundamental part of it and actually making sense. Just, you know, sometimes you just have to step away and ask very simplistic questions. Does this actually make sense? Would this business, for example, survive in five years time? It might be the best business there, but um, where the bonds are gonna trade within today and five years, can I afford to keep it today? And um, or there's going to be an opportunity for me to buy it at a lower price. So that's no one, no one knows that. But um, as long as you have some kind of a structured way of looking at things and looking at risk um, correlations and how your portfolio behave in different regimes and what is actually driving the portfolio. And um, yeah, it's, sometimes it's intuitive. Sometimes it's very down to third or fourth decimal point precise. And you have to adjust from one to another and being able to do that, it's maybe that's the art part. Um, but I, I, I love doing it. And um, I make myself, if I go too macro, too high up, then I bring myself down. If I go too micro, um, I remind myself I have other people looking at each individual balance sheet, they don't have to know all of that. So it is a balance. Um, and it's, unfortunately, uh, in our industry, you don't know whether you're good at it or not until you actually do it. There is no way that somebody will sit and teach you how to do it. There is no university or school or, you know, or even a course that teaches you how to be best fund manager because perception of risk is very different from person to person, from fund manager to fund manager, from client to client. And if you if you can interpret it in a way that you can express it in a portfolio sense, 
that's probably what we're that's our job that's my job that is so glad so glad we got onto risk I think you have some really interesting thoughts on the subject we've talked about how people have different tolerances for risk um, both personally in their professional lives and also of course in as it is expressed in portfolios I'd be interested to hear you explain how you have learned to embrace risk again um my bosses used to say we as fund managers are paid to take risk that's our job so shying away from risk is not doing your job so first of all you you should be comfortable with taking risk having a view and putting money to work so that's that's one two you have to understand each individual risk that you're putting in the portfolio, whether it's, as you say, priced correctly. Are you getting paid to take that risk? Because in the times when the market is in fear mode, for example, you might actually be overcompensated for some risks. And then if the market is too buoyant and complacent that you are taking risks that you're not getting paid for. And if you understand each individual element, which is a building block of the portfolio, that really helps you to start constructing your portfolio. But then on top of that, you also have to understand that there's a lot of market correlations that exist for a reason, because we're all human beings. Uh, you have to remember that what is market? Market is a collection of thousands and thousands of decision makers like myself and like individual investors. Um, making decisions on a daily basis and that what moves the price and um, if you understand the emotional part of it as well as um, dry and analytical side of of a business for example right you get a better picture of what that the risk balance has to be and if you understand correlations or the lack thereof or some asset classes may be moving it in the wrong direction or the opposite direction to the ones that you're invested in. And if you put them two together, the combination of that, individually they might be risky, but the combination of that is actually less risky. And being able to bring that uh, in a portfolio sense, it's like making a soup. <laughs> you have all the ingredients, you put it in, but making it work together. That's that's the art part. And um, I always think about that with uh, salt in cookies, right? You don't want a salty <laughs> cookie, but if you put salt into the cookie, the chocolate tastes better. You know, the brownies taste better. Yeah, there's more flavor. It has to be just enough. Yeah. Just yeah, enough, just enough uh, not to, too much. To, to make it work. Yeah. So then um, when I first started managing portfolios, one of my first um, decisions for to trade local Brazilian bonds. Um, so we are mostly, we are credit investors, we are global scopes, but um, very rarely we would be invested in emerging markets. Back in, back in the time, now it's a little bit more comfortable for us, but we've done it for many years. And I remember when I did that, I was pulled aside and said, what are you doing? These are risky. Uh, positions and it's local rates in Brazil. It's an emerging market. It's a high risk um, investment. And I said, I know that the volatility of that is so much higher, but the correlation of that to anything else is actually either 
non-existent, very, very low. And in a big schema thing, it reduces your overall risk in the portfolio. It might actually go the opposite way. And on top of that, are making your decisions and you're sizing it. That's another important part. If you're sizing it correctly, then it, it, it's additive. If you size it too big, then it becomes probably too risky. And if it goes the wrong way, then it can damage your performance. That is so you have to understand that exactly. So you don't do it either way, but kind of just right, that little salt, perfect. <laughs> I love it. Oh, Alex, there's so many interesting ways we could take this conversation. Honestly, it's just so rich, so many uh, really thoughtful observations. And um, I'm, I'd love to, 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 to go into them in more depth. But I think maybe what we could turn to now is a shared passion that we have, which is really creating a more inclusive financial services industry across different ways of thinking about diversity as well. And in particular, I thought it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on how you might encourage somebody who might not think of going into fund management and particularly on the front line of investing. You know, what, what, what myths or, or heuristics um, that maybe are holding people back that you'd like to bust and help them see it as a, as a, particularly interesting career for people who might be ruling themselves out? I always think about it. I have a daughter and, and, and I always imagine um, when she's older and she's uh, choosing a career that she wouldn't be scared of, of something like, like investment management uh, careers. In my personal experience, I think there is a misconception that being a fund manager or being in the front line, you have to be very numbers person, maths, and um, so the, there was a great example of that when I was invited to host a, a careers fair in one of the high schools here uh, in High Wycombe with my colleagues. And it's not helpful because our logo is a mountain, right? Um, Invesco has a mountain. And um, we put it up uh, the, um, the logo and we're standing there and waiting for all the students to walk in. So these are um, A-level students. And um, no one stops, not, not, none of the girls stop. They keep walking from our stall to another stall. They go to some pet care business or I don't know, like um, a nurse's uh, stall was there, something more caring elements to it or, or, or bi biology. I have my personal view about it. It's, it's a uh, mountain is a very physical appeal to it. It has something a bit masculine about it, right? Like you, I'm not saying there are women, there are not women who go to the top, but perception is about men uh, mostly doing summits and going climbing big mountains. So maybe there is a subliminal message in it as well, which um, um, our marketing department probably never thought about. The men or the boys, they would stop and ask, is this a mountaineering company? Like, no, we are investors and investment. But as soon as they hear it's an investment firm, the boys, they say, oh, I want to talk to a fund manager. I want to be a fund manager, right? And what a difference. The girls, as soon as you say investment firm, blank, 
and then they just walk away. And I said, let's do um, let's do an experiment and just shout out science, science. And I think a lot of people think about science, about biology or chemistry or some natural sciences. But in my head, I was thinking, oh, math is a science, right? <laughs> I'm not saying that you have to be good at math, but you, you need to be a logical person. That That is the requirement. And, and then all these girls just show up and, and they start asking, so what science, what science? And then I said, maths, oh, okay. The enthusiasm just literally died. And I said, why? Oh, boys are better in maths than girls. And so the, it really upsets me because I, I, I think um, it's not right. Actually, there are a lot of girls and women who are really good in, in science of maths and logic. And um, and I think it in, it's ingrained from a very very early age, even in uh, um, primary school. And I was speaking to a mom at the gate when we were picking up our kids, and she was um, complaining that her daughter didn't want to do any math homework. And the daughter said, "Oh, our teacher said it's boys are better in math anyway, so why bother?" I literally, I mean. Uh, to say I was upset, it's actually an understatement. Because I think, first of all, the way it's taught, it's probably not very um, engaging as well. Um, in my spare time, when I was in America, actually, I used to tutor and I used to work as a, a, a teacher for a evening school for maths for children 10 to 14, 15 years old. That was my best part of the day. And I love spending time with kids. On top of that, I like... Uh, math and I and I said I was doing something that I really enjoy doing and I actually get paid for it <laughs> and when you teach these kids in an engaged way oh my god light bulbs just they get these ideas and and then all of a sudden you can see that oh it makes sense now and and then they get excited about it so so a long way of saying I think there is a very um, societal um, perception that um, this is an industry of very dry numbers and um, uh, maths and science. So it's very difficult for young girls to be really interested in uh, in the industry. On top of that, obviously, because of the self-selection process, it's mostly male-dominated and uh, statistics speak for themselves. So, And uh, when I speak to young girls about it, uh, it's intimidating, most of them feel intimidated because they just don't understand what it is all about and you know we need more of this podcast or education from our industry to say actually forget about all the environment of where we are right now in terms of this finance industry but just look at the core of what I do and what we do as fund managers it's all about fiduciary duty to our clients long-term investment taking calculated risk be careful and be responsible for what you do. And these are all the qualities that are mostly female. I'm not saying it's only uh, female, but kind of in generalized way um, attributable to women. And, and because of that, there is a chance that more of managers are actually who are women is, is, a, is a benefit for the industry. If at least for the addition of a different way of looking, thinking, asking questions. Yeah. 
So actually what you're saying is women or girls who might feel that the risk of uncertainty in investing is scary or frightening or intimidating should recognize that their response to that and the way they control risk in their own lives could actually make them very good at it. Yeah, because it's it's about investing is not speculating. Speculating um, maybe does not necessarily fit the profile of a, a woman as a, in a natural way, but mm-hmm. investing, it's taking care of the future. What women are brought to this world to bring the future and nurture that and think about um, how to provide for that. So it's actually a very natural um, skill set, or it's not even a skill set, it's just physiolo- physiological um, attribute. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, if, if we can highlight that and educate young girls and um, show them passionately. I mean, I, I love the job uh, I do. I was lucky enough to be in the right industry that I love. And if I could inspire a, another girl to want to become a fund manager and try myself, just give a chance. And that's another thing. When I was given a chance, I just took it and worked yeah. with it, right? All you need is a chance. And I think maybe as an industry together, we should do more of it, work with um, young girls, give them more skills. Invesco, for example, is a part of this diversity project that is launching um, a 12-month program for um, future female fund managers. I think it's incredible, incredible undertaking. And I would have benefited from it if it was available 20 years ago, right? So... Um, I think we want more of more of that. Yeah, I'll put some details up with the podcast and we publish it, actually. And if you are recruiting someone, so that person does at the walk by your your uh, kiosk at the jobs fair and says, actually, I am interested. And you are then going to be recruiting and interviewing them. What would you look for and what would you advise someone in that position to bring to the table to get to get that chance? So I think... Firstly, um, when we are recruiting, and I say we because I work in a big team and it's um, really, really strong, very productive and positive team. And the reason is we hire people who fit culturally with us. So what I mean by that is somebody who has positive attitude, who is not scared of challenging other people, who has different views, but he or she will bring that an element of freshness and different way of looking at things and not being afraid to propose changes. Because sometimes when you get stuck in your own ways for a long time, it's very difficult to see actually things can be done much better. And um, in the younger generation, specifically the, the ones that have more of a I wouldn't say it's a TikTok generation, but people who are much more versed in technology and social media, they can help massively uh, in our industry because I think we are uh, we're still suffering from lack of this personal touch approach being um, easy to understand and um, the word investment brings so much weight with it. It's you know unlocking that we need some partnership with um, uh, a newer generation because they can probably do it much better than we can mm-hmm. and someone who is open to learn and that's the key because we in this industry and until my 
boss retired, he used to say, I'm still learning. Until the last day I, I, I work it, uh, in, in this industry, I'm still learning because world never changes. It evolves. It keeps moving. You learn something new every day. And, um, but you're not afraid to use your knowledge and uh, your critical thinking and, um, uh, and you are able to work with other people. Those are the skill sets, the very, very um, high, in high demand, I would say, from my perspective. Technical skills, yeah, the technical skills are important, but they're not a must. If there is a person who wants to... Which technical skills particularly? So technical could be maybe Excel, but to be honest, anyone who is that younger age, they probably have grown up with that kind of skill set anyway in school and university. Uh, it's not They've like, probably built their own app already. Exactly. So, so that's not an issue. But having a logical thinking and eloquent thinking, I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, sometimes you can, you have a problem and you can create a solution. Like say the problem is the papers all flowing away in the wind. You need to solve the problem. And you can solve the problem by building a big paperweight or folder put on it, you solved it. But is it the most efficient way of doing it? You can just take paperweight, put on it and it's done. So that is a creative thinking part. Um, and, uh, and I really think that people who have that um, can go very far. Well, I could talk to you all afternoon and thank you so much for this time. It's been a really fascinating discussion and a lot to think about. I wanted to close with three quick fire questions, Alex. Okay. So the first one is, is there a favorite film or novel that you've seen or read more than once and why? You know, I, I've read the book, um, How to Win Friends. By Dale Carnegie? Uh, and uh, influence people, yeah, influence um, people. And the reason I read it twice was, or twice or three times, it's just in different stages of your life, that book resonates differently. Yeah. And um, so I, I recently reread uh, a version that was um, written for uh, online communication, which was quite interesting. Fascinating. A great tip. Uh, one of the classics. Second is, what's your favorite quote? Or do you have a favorite quote? doesn't have to be your only favorite quote. Yeah. I do. I do have. What language is it in as well? <laughs> is the question. No, it's, it, it's probably I've, I've seen somewhere in Instagram or something. Um, I have this quote that actually got stuck with me for a long time is, um, and I have no idea where it's coming from. Uh, it says, if your dreams, if people don't laugh at your dreams, your dreams are not big enough. And I, I try to live by that. And in the world of podcasts, do you have a favorite podcast? So we can shout out to some other podcasters out there. Oh my God, hands down. Okay, um, this one, uh, yeah, I had, I actually listened it uh, through the whole of episodes, like list of episodes. It's called Conflicted. Eamon Dean is, is um, he used to be an Al-Qaeda um, member and then he became double agent for MI6. Oh my God. What a fascinating stories that he has to tell. I mean, it was so fascinating that I listened and re-listened twice because there's so much detail in it. So I highly recommend that. That's a great recommendation. Well, thank you so much, Alex. It's been a great pleasure. And I think um, anybody listening to this is going to take a huge amount away from it, both uh, 
for inspiration and some learnings about opportunities that uh, they might not have considered. So thank you so much. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Being Invested. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. If so, please subscribe and tell your friends. Also, if you know someone in the financial markets who would make a great guest on the podcast, please message me on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Alexander Russell. Our art designer is Sophie Hardy, and this fabulous catchy tune is from Tom McKeon. Thanks, folks, and see you next time. Thank you.